And welcome once again to Father Spitzer's Universe as the busy intersection of faith and reason. I'm Doug Keck, of course, very busy as we're here in this Thanksgiving week. And you can email your questions to us at spitzersuniverse at EWTN.com. They're a central part of the program. Check out all of Father's websites, magiscenter.com, purposefuluniverse.com, and spitzerscenter.org. So don't, don't put that down as a .com, it's an org. And Father Spitzer's Universe is always <laughs> available on our EWTN YouTube channel and our EWTN On Demand page, unless Father says something that gets us pulled off YouTube channel, which so far hasn't done, so that's a good thing. Recently added to our On Demand page is My Lord's Faith Journey. Learn of the powerful stories of suffering and tragedy transformed to healing and faith at the shrine of Our Lady of Lords. See it now for free and on demand. And um, any 24-7, seven days a week, you can go to EW10.com and find out all of this, along with some great uh, podcasts as well. It's all there for you. We continue with the moral wisdom of the Catholic Church from Father's Book. EW10RC.com for all of Father's books are available now. And Rejoicing in Our Hope is the book of the month for November by our good pal, Bishop Robert J. Baker. And Bishop Baker, I'll let you know, is also Father Mitch's guest this week on EWTN Live. So check that out as well. And we'll turn to our other Jesuit we count on, the one and only Father Spitzer. <laughs> and good to be with you. If you'll kick things off with a prayer, that'd be great, Father. You bet. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your many blessings to us, the blessing especially of our faith in this ministry and our ability to serve in it. We ask you to send your Holy Spirit down upon us now, Doug, myself, our whole staff and our audience, so that everything we do and say and hear will be brought to fruition in your will for the good of your people, your church, and your kingdom. We ask all of these things through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. And Mary, seat of wisdom. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Always great to be with you, Father. I hope you have a good week. And uh, usually for Thanksgiving, <laughs> you're, you're traveling, but I don't think so this year, right? No, I'm going to uh, just get a little uh, procedure I got to do. So I'm, uh, it's re really on the Monday after Thanksgiving. So I'm going to stick around uh, here and uh, I go to my good friend uh, Tim Bush's house for mm -hmm. Thanksgiving and uh, there of course I can gorge myself as I always do on every form of meat uh, imaginable. <laughs> right, right, yes. I think you'll have to suffer through uh, Thanksgiving at the Bush's. Uh, so, hardly suffering. I right. Uh, well, you I'm know, someone has to do it, right? Someone has to do it. So. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's right. So I'll eat all the. They, they've fixed these party eggs, you know, that are right. really good, and uh, a variety of other things that, uh, of course, I, I must wolf down. That's but right. it is, after all, Thanksgiving. That's right. <laughs> and I'm thankful for all of it. That's right. And just so people know. Uh, what you have going on uh, with your minor surgery is minor. It's not a major thing, and it has nothing to do yeah. with your vision, right? That's right. Okay. Just uh, so no, unfortunately, alas, no. Asking questions <laughs> about that always. Okay. So sure. let's talk about um, this article, uh, The Hartford Appeal and the Synod on Synodality. It's a Catholic World Report article. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting because they went uh -huh. back and looked at something Richard John Newhouse was involved in back in 1974. Uh -huh when he was still a Lutheran pastor and a gentleman named Peter Berger, who was a sociologist yep. of religion. 
and uh, they were concerned yep. about the things that they found most annoying in liberal theology that was dominating their circles in the United States at that time, and this is like in the mid-70s. And uh, they point, yeah. they, when they put these out, uh, they were considered the Hartford heresies uh, because of the fact that they were standing up for what they believe was dynamic orthodoxy. I thought it was interesting to run through uh -huh. a couple of the categories they came up with because some of them sound vaguely familiar. Uh, they, they came out <laughs> with bad idea number one which was flagged by the Hartford Appeal. Modern thought is superior to all past forms of understanding. Reality is therefore normative for Christian faith and life. That whole idea that we can learn nothing mm -hmm. from the past. We're suffering with that now, aren't yeah. we? Oh, yeah. I mean, Chesterton pointed this out in his great book, The Everlasting Man, uh, a while back, and then reinforced it incredibly in another book, ironically called Heretics. Mm -hmm. uh, and so um, uh, in that book, he actually elucidates all of these various heresies, but this is definitely one of them, mm -hmm. the modernist, uh, uh, you know, assumption that uh, if, you, if it came out of today's world, it's got to be better than if it came out of the past, mm -hmm. which, of course, does not take account uh, of the fact well recognized by Christian philosophers for centuries that if something virtuous came out of the past, that if something moral, a great moral insight about justice came out of the past or about God came out of the past, uh, the modern age is really not going to be able to make much improvement. Technology can improve the way uh, we understand electrodynamics and so uh, can uh, definitely uh, help us understand new technologies and so forth and so on. But alas, it's not going to really help us with the virtuous life, the internal moral natural law that was articulated uh, by uh, St. Thomas Aquinas and of course St. Augustine mm -hmm. before him and of course Jesus Christ above all. So I mean we're not going to get any new insight. Now we could get some new insights into social mm -hmm. um, uh, ethics and, and we have uh, since the economic uh, revolution and uh, now we've updated you know, economic ethics and social ethics mm -hmm. to account for some of these technologies uh, but that's not a new moral insight so the you know abandonment of certain moral insights uh, because they're um, as it were not modern or accusing them of being anachronistic out of uh, step uh, with the uh, the modern world is mm -hmm. generally a very bad thing because moral insights, uh, uh, even the insight and the articulation of what it means to love, really hasn't changed that much over the course of time. Yes, we see new applications of the insight in certain new social and technological contexts, but for all intents and purposes, the moral insight mm -hmm. of Jesus Christ is still the moral insight of Jesus Christ adapted to new contexts, right. but the insight has not changed. Right. So if we're going to fundamentally change something that Jesus has said, like, uh, you know, okay, so you shouldn't uh, be having sex outside of a, a marriage with one man and mm -hmm. one woman, etc. <coughs> that is very clear in Christian, uh, in the Christian context. And not just from Jesus, <clears throat> but also from St. Paul, who reinforces it and rearticulates it for the Greek and Hellenistic world, you can pretty much see uh, that, that that ought to stand uh, just as it is. If you want right. to go back on that, that's probably going to be a regression, a moral regression mm -hmm. that really is 
not going to be something of great merit. And like I said, this is nothing new. Chesterton pointed this out right. again and again. And of course, you see the Hartford document uh, right. from the Protestants that pointed it out. Uh, you're missing the old insight. Moral insights right. uh, remain integral over the course of time. They're the truths of the heart, which is very different than the truths of technology and economics, social context, and other things which vary over the course right. of the progress of uh, in election and the progress of science and the progress of our world in general. Right. Right. So, uh, yep, the very That's bad cool. idea. It's a, okay, here's you know, a, no, we have ahead. more bad ideas to go over. So the next one is bad oh, idea. Sorry. <laughs> is bad idea number four. Uh, I don't know what the other ones were, but these yeah. are the ones that got highlighted. Jesus can only be yeah. understood in terms of contemporary models of humanity. And the article says, in this instance, <laughs> things have actually gotten worse since 75 in that some protagonists of progressive Catholicism now claim that Lord Jesus was simply mistaken about certain matters. So we need to understand Jesus only in terms of contemporary models of humanity. Oh, yeah, I can just see it now. I think uh, an, one contemporary mar model is the Marxist model, mm -hmm. which basically is a fundamental denial of individual human rights. Ah, it'd be much better if we really reinterpreted Jesus in terms of Marxist doctrine, not. Mm -hmm. Of course, that would be one of the, the worst retrogressions you could ever make, you know, morally as well as humanistically. I mean, that'd be a crusher of freedom. Oh, perhaps be Skinner, I completely forgot a really good deterministic model of human human beings don't have any freedom. We're just a bunch of uh, stimulus response machines that responds, uh, you know, to complex environmental stimuli uh, in a series of pre-programmable -progr pre ways. Mm -hmm. So you look at that and you go, oh yes, let's interpret Jesus's doctrine of love, uh, you know, within a completely uh, deterministic uh, confluence, and mm -hmm. and, uh, and uh, think of that uh, rather as a bunch of chemical in our physical brain that we have no real uh, you know choice about and mm -hmm. let's just pull in fact human freedom out of the whole notion of the human being we'd be so much better with that modern that contemporary model and and you know I, the, the list goes on and on I mean do we need the Hitlerian sociological model uh, do we need the genetic deterministic model do we need the sociobiological model so helpful to the understanding of human beings and, and so wonderful for interpreting uh, you know, Jesus' view of love, Jesus' view of morality, and of course the freedom mm -hmm. of, of, of individuals and by, uh, you know, the intrinsic dignity of individuals. Have you ever noticed that every single one of those models defines the human being in terms of their extrinsic dignity? Mm -hmm. They have no intrinsic dignity. So the guy who's not writing the book or the guy who's not the <laughs> best athlete, the woman who's not the, the, the beauty pageant queen mm -hmm. and so forth and so on, they got nothing nothing to go on. They just don't have any extrinsic dignity that I can account as meritorious. Eh, maybe we can do a Peter Singer and get rid of them <laughs> before they even exist. How's about that? A little infanticide to help our world with another contemporary model of the human person. Right. Oh, oh yes, Jesus really needs that. That's going to really help. Sorry to, to, to keep going, right. but uh, oh my right. gosh. I mean, the list Absolutely. is ripe. Right. You know. <laughs> oh, dear. Right. Okay, here's bad idea number five, okay? 
All religions, <laughs> all religions are equally valid. The choice among them is not a matter of conviction about truth, but only of personal preference or lifestyle. And just remember, this was a perspective <laughs> of Orthodox Protestant ministers in 1974, what they saw happening in the Protestant church. So think about these in terms of what we might hear yeah. in some aspects of the Catholic church today. So the idea, all religions are basically yeah. equally valid, preferences, lifestyle kind of thing. We can all learn from each yeah. other. Well, of course, uh, that's right. That's a subjectivist model. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a fundamental denial of objective truth. So, of course, this allows uh, contradictions to happen. John is both six foot three and six foot four in the same respect at the same place and time, not. Mm -hmm. But I mean, the subjectivist model of reducing everything to mere preferences means that we have a, f a group of real objective contradictions out there that we're just gonna glaze over. Now, the, the main thing to, to, to look at when you hear somebody uh, with a subjectivist point of view is to say, well, my subjectivist point of view is that you don't need to be alive for having a subjectivist point of view. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, I, I just say I rank you as inferior, and that's my religion, and, and that's my religious conviction. If we could just get rid of subjectivists like you, the world would be a better place. Now, go ahead, counteract me with another subjectivist point of view. And I'll just say all opinions are equal. And now you're a dead man. So the point, of course, is this is nonsense. It's absolute, as the British would say, mm -hmm. shocking nonsense. Shocking. I mean, the, the, the key point is pretty shocking. You know, the, the point is we've got to reject any right. kind of subjective preference because that's what leads to tyrannies almost every time. That's what gives marketers the capacity to go out and, as it were, influence people because the mm -hmm. only thing that matters is whether you bought the product, not whether you were manipulated falsely into it. Right. So that's the first well, problem with you. that particular. <laughs> or whether it was good for you. Yeah. That doesn't matter either. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Yeah, that's right, exactly. So, I mean, that, that gets back to our first two right. bad ideas. Right. But the, 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 just to get one other thing in uh, with respect to, you know, the objective truth problem, it, and, of course, Friedrich Heiler uh, did have a, a very important contribution to make uh, to, uh, you know, international religion. I mean, he basically identified seven common characteristics of uh, uh, major religions. Now, that doesn't include Satanism, etc. The main thing it includes, of course, are these major religions, and they're are seven major characteristics that are similar. However, he hastens to add that at the very same time, they prioritize those things very differently. Mm. They understand the terms that are used. For example, the term love, which is in two of the uh, seven uh, common characteristics, understand it very differently. Now, did Jesus have a different understanding of love than just about any other religion? Yes, he did. And that difference is really important. Jesus' definition in terms of, you know, the Beatitudes, that love is basically, uh, right, it is forgiving, right? A lot of religions just don't believe that you have to be forgiving. But Jesus not only says it, he says love is humble-hearted, right, the poor in spirit. He says love is gentle-hearted, that's the meek. He says that love is merciful. That includes forgiveness of people who've really wronged you unjustly, and it also includes compassion 
oppression to the marginalized and those who are ignored. It also, you know, Jesus views the notion of love too in terms of purity of heart, right? Not lying and propagandizing people with all kinds of false truths and marketing efforts that are meant to deceive. Hmm, what's going on with these doctors? And then finally, of course, uh, being a peacemaker, etc. Mm -hmm. So the idea is he changes the notion of love in radical ways that you don't see in other religions. But secondly, what Jesus does, and this is really important, is he raises love to the highest commandment. You don't see this in any other religion. This is called a prioritization, and prioritization can matter almost as much as the definition of love itself. The highest thing for Jesus is love. Right. And then he says that the love of neighbor is almost equally important as the love of God. So love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength. And then the second is like it, he says. That, by the way, you know, the great Shema, you know, love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, that was thought to be a very important commandment, a so-called heavy commandment. But a like commandment was love your neighbor as yourself from Leviticus, right? Now Jesus takes that, he puts it right up on top there, a like, like it, 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 almost like it. And then Jesus tops it off by saying, the, uh, the Torah, and it, that's the law, and the prophets are all summed up in these two commandments. Mm -hmm. Imagine that. You're a Jewish Pharisee out there, and you're listening to him, and you're, they're going, what? You know, what do you mean? We got 160 mm -hmm. perfectly good commandments. What, what are you talking about here? So, of course, <clears throat> you know, trying to make this, all the other commandments be holding to these two commandments of love. Mm. But then Jesus goes on further. Those commandments that we talked about before when we we're talking about our book, you know, whatever you do mm -hmm. to the least of my brothers, you do to me. In other words, giving equal status to slaves. Are you kidding me? Giving, you know, forgiving sinners from the heart and allowing them in? Are you kidding me? Are prisoners? You know, are you kidding right. me? Good thief on the cross gets forgiven. Strict justice is trumped by love, by merciful love. Are you kidding me? I mean, now, now when you look at those seven characteristics uh, that are common to all major religions, which, of course, just shows that God, of course, cares about everybody. Of right. course, he's going to reveal himself in other religions and to people in their heart. However, Jesus is really objectively different. Right. His view of love is objectively different. And that's why prior to Jesus, you do not see this huge explosion of public welfare things. That was the Christian church that, you know, got out there beyond its own community and, you know, did the public, the real explosion of public welfare, the real explosion of educating the slaves. The Christians were so good at educating slaves right. and educating people that were right. lower classes, that essentially the Romans couldn't even persecute the Christians anymore during the persecution of Diocletian because, of course, they were persecuting their entire government bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. The Christians had educated the slaves working in the Roman bureaucracy. They're dragging all these guys out and killing them. And finally, a couple of these administrators go, hmm, I don't think this is a good idea. I mean, basically, we're, we're shooting our, our whole government bureaucracy in the head, and now nobody's around to administer anything. Mm -hmm. Okay, stop that then. Stop that Christian and, of course, the Christians, they, uh, not only the education thing, they took over the public, uh, you know, welfare, I mean, the public health uh, institution. And today, right. guess what? The Catholic Church is still the largest health care right. institution in the world. 26% right. are overseen by Catholic Church. And you look at the 98,000 elementary schools and the 46,000 high schools and the 1,700 
uh, universities, right. et cetera, et cetera, Catholic Church, Catholic Church, and the public right. welfare from orphanages to homes for the poor to, you know, uh, social right. welfare, uh, uh, you know, handouts in communities, et cetera, et cetera, all these things, the Catholic right. Church. So, so I'm not surprised. Yeah, right. you can say objectively, right. you so know, yes, love's there in the other religions, okay, let's, but not let's, like Christianity. Uh, no, absolutely. Let's Sorry. jump uh, to bad idea number nine. <laughs> Institutions and historical oh, sure. traditions are oppressive and inimical to our being truly human. Liberation from them is required for our authentic existence and authentic religion. Boy, does that sound familiar. Oh, yeah, it may sound familiar, but of course it's a heresy. And of course, m worse than that is, is it really is destructive. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, I'll just use that uh, book I've, I think I quoted a few weeks back, uh, Raymond Brown's book, uh, mm -hmm. um, The Church of the Beloved Disciple. And this is about jo the Johannine Church in Ephesus. And of course, what he's doing is he's piecing together the history of that church. Why did the Johannine Church fall apart? Why is it that they just were torn apart by heresies, torn apart by dissension, torn apart by all kinds of Gnostic movements that at the end of the day, John is out there in his second and third letters going, you know, the Antichrist, uh, his first, second, and third letters, the Antichrist is out there, right? And, and uh, you know, you've got to stop all of this. You have to believe us. But what did John do? What was the failure of the mm -hmm. Johannine Church that Paul did not do? Paul had hierarchies. <clears throat> Paul started institutions. Paul gave prioritization. First there's apostles, then there's prophets, then there's teachers, and here's how it's going to work, the laying on of hands. So the apostles are laying on the hands of the uh, prophets and pro presbyters, and, and they become later the episcopoi, the bishops, and then of course they, the bishops appoint the presbyters. So Paul's got a governance structure. Right. He's got an institution. He's got an authority basis. He's got authority priorities. This is exactly what the Johannine Church didn't do. There was no authority to mitigate problems in teaching. So every time they had a disagreement in the community, uh, you can see, by the way, uh, how the Protestant church uh, burgeoned from about five different churches uh, during the time of Luther and Calvin, and burgeons, of course, into a, you know several thousand churches uh, today. Because every time you have a disagreement about Scripture, but you do not have a definitive authoritative teaching uh, authority that can come out and say, mm -hmm. this is right and this is wrong and this is the way that it, it is, you're going to have a problem. And again, we not, need not just a teaching authority to decide interpretations of what Jesus intended by the wisdom of, of a collective body like the church. We also need a juridical authority, a definitive juridical authority. Jesus, obviously, was no dummy. He knew that this was necessary, not just because he was the son of God, because he's looking around him. There he is in the Jewish society. He's seeing the S and he's seeing the Sadducees, and he's seeing the Pharisees, and 15 groups within the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Essenes, and they're all arguing with one another, and the zealots are on the side punching everybody out, and you look at that, and you go, this is, something's wrong here, because right. we're talking about all the various religions, and so somehow we're going to have to have a definitive authority. Now, of course, Jesus knew that this was his Father's will, mm -hmm. but he also knew, just looking around, right, hey, you're going to need a juridical authority, you're going to 
need a teaching authority. If you don't have a definitive one, if you don't have an authority structure, the Joanine right. Church is going to be the future. It's just going to fall apart, disseminate into a bunch of Gnostic movements, which will soon become like unto nothing. Right, absolutely. And of course, that last heresy is a bad one. And I know I bloviated, but I'll tell we you got one, one more. thing. We got it one, more. one more. One more. One more bad idea oh. I wanted to get to. Bad idea number 10. Okay. Uh, they, there's some that skipped here, so don't count them, folks. The world must set the agenda for the church. Social, political, and economic programs to improve the quality of life are ultimately normative for the church's mission. <laughs> yes, the world should set the agenda for the church's uh, social mission. <clears throat> uh, that is just ignoring the whole of history. Mm -hmm. It was the church who set the social mission that the later, on, later on that secular governments, formerly tyrannical and despotic, actually followed. It was St. Augustine who said, hey, you know, this Roman Empire stuff, it's not that great. You know, at the end of the day, we probably shouldn't be uh, killing millions of people in the Colosseum and enslaving all these people and turning them into gladiatorial combatees against their own will and the complete deprivation of rights to anybody who's not a citizen. Maybe this is not the best idea that was ever thought of. Maybe we ought to put justice in the place of this kind of despotic positive law. That was the Christians. We cannot forget this fact. It is Augustine who's railing against us and battling against us. I mean, you could just, uh, did Caligula have this in mind? Uh, did, did Nero have this in mind? I do not think so. The main thing, of course, that we, uh, you know, I'm, of course I'm being sarcastic, but I'm also being very realistic. That it was the Christians who led this effort. Right. The Christians who tried their best to undermine slavery and servitude. They didn't quite fix it all, but they made a lot of progress mm -hmm. uh, in, in uh, turning it around. And certainly, uh, at, the, at the end of the day, uh, you can see, like I said, right. in terms of public health and public education, public welfare, the world was much, much better off. We didn't need, you know, I mean, you, you look at that and you go, oh, yes, let's see now, during the time of Leo Thirteenth, yes, the world was doing so well mm -hmm. in its social mission. Let's see, there was fascism. Uh, they knew how to get, let's kill all the, uh, the, the Jews and the people who are less than, uh, what we would call genetically precise, mm -hmm. the nice euphemism for, uh, you know, the genetic defects and so forth and so on that the Nazis had. And let's, by the way, uh, take away all the properties from all those people who are inferiors within the society. Let's put up a murderous despotic regime. So uh, this is the social, oh, you say, oh, no, no, but the communists, they were so much better mm -hmm. in the implementation of their socioeconomic theory as the totalitarian theory, uh, 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 theorists were sitting there lopping off the heads of not just the monarchs, mm -hmm. but anybody who was considered aristocracy. And while they were at mm -hmm. it, anybody who disagreed with them. So Oh, yes, let's take the lead from these non-Christian social a governmental institution. You say, oh, the United States was much better than that. You picked some
some uh, regimes that were not beneficent. Ah, but I didn't pick regimes. Uh, I mean, the reason that the United States was beneficent was because it was fundamentally a religious country. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it, I'm just reminded of when Roosevelt is meeting there with uh, Stalin and Churchill is, is meeting with Stalin, and you know, and Stalin is just saying all of these incredible things. And finally, Roosevelt turns to Stalin and he goes, have you no fear of hellfire? You know, in other words, if you don't love God, at least do you fear hell? And Stalin looked at him like, you know, wow, what are you talking about? I mean, we were a fundamentally, at one time, a fundamentally religious people. And we took Christian charity very, very seriously. And that's why we brought it in to social welfare institutions. But it was Leo XIII, it was that pope. That um, um, uh, a man of uh, you know who took he said let's learn the lessons we can from uh, America and America's labor movement let's learn the mess the uh, the uh, the lessons we can from the free market uh, organizations that we see around us that are not taking advantage right? because that was the problem in the 19th century the industrial revolution had produced this class-filled society that was horribly uh, not only inequitable but terrible to the poor. So, of course, he, right. he's learning all these lessons, but he didn't want to throw off the free market society. He didn't want right. a despotic government. He still believed fundamentally in democracy, and he wove together this document called Rerum Navarum, which right. was an incredibly good document. This is a pope, everybody. It's fundamentally religious people in the countries of the United States and Great Britain, etc. It's fundamentally uh, you know, religious people and religious thinkers who are weaving this together especially in the Catholic Church with social and economic theory, their, their own right. theological practices, there's where you're getting Absolutely. leadership. To abandon, to, to, to say that the church should take its lead. Right, from, Absolutely. You know, non-religious. Absolutely. Yeah, it's crazy. crazy. Well, we got yeah, it. We got sorry. it. We're out of time yeah. for the first half. We're going to take a break. It reminds me, I think Orwell was talking to some representative of the Soviet Union yeah. and complaining about even yeah. what they were doing to their people. And they said, well, the classic line from Lenin about, well, you make an omelet, you got to have to break a few eggs. And apparently Orwell said, well, yeah. show me your omelet that you've made because it may not look that yeah. good. So with that, we're going to take a break yeah. and much more ahead. We're going to get to your questions when we come right back here in Father's Pictures Universe. Welcome back to Father Spitzer's Universe. We appreciate you staying with us as we'll continue on with Father's book, The Moral Wisdom of the Catholic Church. You know, just wanted to mention, yeah. still in November, even though we've got Thanksgiving here, uh, there's a wonderful children's book by Susan Tussoni, The Purgatory Lady, and she's got a book called New Friends Now and Forever, a story about the holy souls. Really important for us to think of the church in that way and the great saints and those who are in purgatory who could use our prayers. Available through the EWTN Religious Catalog, EWTNRC.com for all things Catholic and all things Father Spitzer as well. And here's uh, one of the questions people sent in to us. Here, dear Father Spitzer, how does one deal with the immediate raw period of mourning and shock when we lose a loved one? As Catholics, we hope to spend eternity with God, but how can we best deal with a sudden tragic loss in our life? This is Lisa Marie. 
Well, Lisa Marie, I, I, there's a book I wrote called um, The Light Shines On in the Darkness, Transforming Suffering Through Faith. And, and in that book, uh, in chapters four and five, I give a series of spontaneous prayers there. And then in chapter five, I give uh, you know a set of kind of my little rules for how to mitigate fear and anxiety and increase trust in the Lord. I'll just give a few little hints from uh, that, but there's a lot to this. Uh, your question is really so good, mm -hmm. but uh, here are just a few little uh, starter things uh, for you. Uh, the first thing is is um, you know when you when you're kind of in a state of shock like that, you do need those spontaneous prayers. Right. Make some good come out of you know this suffering you know an optimal good come out of this suffering and you know offering it up is really important and I've got a variety of prayers there in chapter 4 but the spontaneous prayers are the good one because you know when the anxiety level is increasing I use that prayer Lord push back the foreboding push back the darkness because oftentimes in grieving and uh, you know there is a kind of a depression or a darkness that comes in uh, you know at the same time so I'm constantly using that prayer. I'm just going to use my hands, Lord. Just push back this darkness, push back this depression, push back this anxiety and foreboding. Right. That's a really important one. The second thing is to, you know, when, when something like this happens, uh, I just click over into rationality. In other words, don't let yourself get too emotional. St let the rational part um, you know, sort of start taking over, where you begin to really think, okay, uh, how can I help this family, or I, how can I help, uh, you know, the, the people who are the survivors here? What can I do? So, you know, that, that asking a question mm -hmm. gets our mind engaged right away on how we could be of some assistance uh, to another person. Or just thinking, you know, theologically, you know, well, this person is with God, right. and even though I miss them, uh, you know, what my job to, here to do is, is to try and help out as much as I can. But get your rational mind right. uh, sort of, um, you know, uh, uh, involved right. in that. The third thing that I really recommend is, you know, the, the whole thing with expectations. You know, so you think, what's life going to be like without this person? Mm -hmm. Don't do that mm -hmm. because when you ask that question basically what's going to happen is you're going to say well I can't live without that person I don't want life to be any different than what I expected it to be yesterday before that person died mm -hmm. I really am going to miss him and blah, blah 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 and you start rehearsing this thing adjust your expectations rationally mm -hmm. and just say okay uh, you know I'm going to maybe have to get some support from somebody else mm -hmm. who would I get my support from okay I'm probably going to have to you know uh, find a, you know a, a means of uh, of you know uh, getting a uh, readjusting my focus on mm -hmm. who you know my social life will be oriented around etc so in other words just to adjust the expectations but do it rationally don't move into the emotion mode because if you do it'll just right. you know uh, uh, sort of take over you know where where it was and the last thing I, I just uh, you know just these are starter things you can reach right. after five but don't keep looking back and saying mm. boy I wish you know when I started going blind right uh, and I'm sitting there going you know yesterday I could see those mountains today I can't see those mountains ah! 
You know, in other words, it's the, the fact that I'm losing this, my life's going to be, you know, if you keep comparing mm -hmm. what life was like before the, you know, the blindness started to happen and the, all the little losses and you're just counting all the losses, be future oriented. Mm -hmm. Start looking at what can I do? Mm -hmm. How can I make optimal positive difference? How can I offer up this suffering uh, for, you know, somebody, um, you know, be, beyond myself, etc.? How can I, how can I, what's in the future? What can I do without this person in the future? You can do lots of things without mm -hmm. that person in the future. Of course it's going to be different. Of course we have to adjust expectations. Be rational, mm -hmm. be prayerful, and above all, remember Jesus' words. Fear is useless. Mm -hmm. What is needed is trust. Right. So at the end of the day, that's what we have to kind of use as our model. But great question. Thank right. you. Right, absolutely. I always think with that too, sometimes with the person who's suffering that, is to think, well, what would your loved one want for you? You know, they loved you as much yeah. as you loved them. Great. Mm -hmm. And if they're with the Lord or they are with they, they certainly don't want you to have to suffer any more than you're already suffering. Though they appreciate, you know, mm -hmm, that you mm -hmm. miss them, but they wouldn't want that to be something that yeah. would consume you, I would think. Here's another question. Dear Father Spitzer, mm -hmm. I've recently Good listened point. to your podcast regarding near-death experiences. Those experiencing an NDA mm -hmm. often see de deceased friends and relatives. Can we conclude that the friends and relatives mm -hmm. are from heaven and therefore are saints? Is there any scripture or teaching that says something to the contrary? Julianne. Well, Julianne, I would just say this. Uh, you can pretty much tell uh, that the person is coming from heaven because, uh, as I've uh, maybe said in a previous program, 85% of the adults, uh, much more, uh, I'll just, uh, than, you know, like almost 100% of children, have a very, uh, what I would call a more heavenly, mm -hmm. a beautiful experience. So when you get to the external surrounding areas, the person who's uh, experiencing the NDE will notice that, you know, um, they don't feel pain. Uh, the emotional pain is gone and so forth and so on. Things look beautiful. The, the people who are coming to meet mm -hmm. them are transformed in joy. They are happy people and they're giving a message which of course is not deceiving or dark or something. They're, not, uh, they're giving the message, hey, you know, I know you want to come and you want to stay, but now's not your time. Mm -hmm. And here's why. You may have to do XYZ during your life, or maybe your children need you. But they're, they're you know, generally a, a message of positivity, a mm -hmm. message of the goodness of their lives. And so I would yes, say, yes, if you, these are what your relatives, the deceased relatives are saying when you get to this very beautiful domain, I think it's safe to assume they're in heaven. Okay. Uh, on the dark experience, so there's 15% dark experiences. Mm -hmm. Now those 15%, as I said, the suicides uh, often have a very lonely, uh, empty, uh, kind of an experience, uh, you know, basically they, uh, um, you know, if you encounter somebody, uh, you know, uh, in, in that domain, it's really a kind of wailing and grinding of teeth a little mm -hmm. bit in the sense that it is lonely, it's empty, it's, it's, it's alienating, it's filled with malaise, etc. Mm -hmm. Whereas evil people and cruel people, when they die, they're actually um, 
not greeted by relatives and lo loving people like a, and a loving white light uh, that's unrestrictedly mm -hmm. loving. They're oftentimes greeted by demonic um, uh, mm -hmm. beings, and of course, this is a, a very kind of hellish sort of, um, right. uh, you know, um, you know, they, they they're given the same cruelty that they meted out. Uh, you know, um, right. uh, to others, and so in a way, uh, you know, um, you know, I would probably say that uh, that uh, these individuals are definitely, um, um, you know, you can tell right. uh, either they're they're tormented beings or tormenting beings, right. and that would be the main difference. So you're right. you're right. That's a proper assumption. Right. One last question before we get to the book, dear Father Spitzer. Uh, do ghosts exist, and if so, what are they? When the apostles saw Jesus walking on the water, the Bible says they thought they were seeing a ghost. What would they have, they have considered a ghost to be back then, Cliff? Yeah, uh, that, that notion of ghost there is probably not what's meant. Mm -hmm. uh, they thought they were seeing a spiritual being. Mm -hmm. So when you see that, you know, nor, that pneumaticon or, you know, pneumatic, uh, you know, a, mm -hmm. a, a prefix, uh, that generally means a spiritual being. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean like what we would call today a ghost, for example, that might be in a house mm -hmm. or something of that nature. So they're not calling Jesus that kind of a ghost. That's an old English translation of uh, you know that uh, that prefix, that pneumatic, uh, uh, pneuma, pneumaticon, pneuma, uh, pneumatica, uh, kind of um, easy for you um, to say, uh, prefix. right? But, so, uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. But uh, but the main thing, though, is you know um, it doesn't mean what we would mean as a ghost. Okay. Now let's get back to what I think you mean by a ghost in mm -hmm. the contemporary sense. Yes, ghosts absolutely do exist. There is just as a Chester once put it, uh, there's more testimonies about ghosts that are valid for anyone who wants to listen. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, they do exist. They're present in so many different uh, contexts. Uh, some of those ghosts, uh, some of the things we call ghosts, are frequently human beings who are somehow still in this world for some reason or mm -hmm. another. Perhaps they have chosen to be in this world. They tend, of course, to be uh, either the poltergeist types, which are up to mischief mm -hmm. and things of that nature. Uh, but most of them, they, are, they don't want to go anywhere. They have chosen to stay in mm -hmm. a place or stay in a house or something of that nature. Why the Lord allows it, I do not know. But there's just literally thousands of testimonies to this. Okay. Now, there are some things that we call ghosts that are really not ghosts. They are not human beings uh, who are, as it were, you know, chosen to stay around mm -hmm. or something like that. They are truly uh, demonic beings or they are um, human beings that may uh, uh, have wound up uh, in a demonic situation who have returned to make other people's lives very hellish. And, and of course, you have to be very careful. Uh, this is where all the occult stuff, I think a few weeks ago we were right. talking about uh, you know the occult, and um, you know I said don't don't start in on Ouija boards right, because absolutely. you're calling up spirits. But uh, are those spirits really the ghosts of human beings? The spiritual 
um, you know, um, uh, remnant, as right. it were, of a human being? Uh, or are those spirits really evil spirits? Are they really people who have, well, malice at their hearts, right. uh, have actually, um, uh, you know, a maleficent uh, intention and, and uh, almost uh, cruel intention in their heart? They are, they could be the latter, mm -hmm. and if they are, whatever you do, do not consort with them. Do not look askance at them. All I've given you the prayer uh, the, or the, the admonition, I mean, or the command, right? In the name of Jesus, be gone, Satan. Right. So once you feel that, that you know, malignant intention, that, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, really that uh, evil intention, once you feel that pressure, that emptiness, you know, just being around them, fills you with vapidness, evil, emptiness, malice. Once you feel that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the main thing to do is you say that prayer in the name of Jesus begotten Satan, the main name of Jesus begotten Satan, and say that 10 mm -hmm. times. And, and I'm telling you, it will subside. They certainly hate the name of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And even if you just say in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, he, that right. is, Satan can't take it. They ju he just can't. And he, uh, that being, uh, and even if it's a very, very, um, you know, um, right. uh, maleficent being, that being is going gonna, is gonna to get out of there. They, right. they, they don't want to be anywhere around Jesus or Mary for that. Or Mary, who a lot of exorcists mm -hmm. say that mm -hmm. Mary's name being mentioned yeah. causes quite a bit of trouble. Let's move mm -hmm. to the, in the last 10 minutes or so yeah. to, to the book. Uh, on page 35, jumping back from 36, which we were talking about in, in the section on uh, the five major principles, one of the things you mentioned, and I wanted to go back to this, an unjust law is no law at all. Well, that, that sounds right, but who determines what, which laws are just or unjust? Yeah, it's not a, really a matter of who. Uh, you know, very interesting about uh, St. Augustine um, was he thought that there was really an objective uh, principle uh, to it. And the objective, the best starting point principle comes from what we call the pre principle of non-maleficence. Mm -hmm. That's what we call the silver rule. Don't do a harm to others that you don't want done to you. So in other words, if a harm is unnecessary, or it's something that is preventable uh, in some way, you shouldn't do it to another person. And Jesus sets out that rule of, that objective rule of justice, right? You can just say to yourself, wow, you know, um, I, I guess that's a, a pretty standard rule. If I don't want a harm done to me, I probably oughtn't to do that harm to other people. I have an obligation to do that. And you know, that, that, that's an easy principle. The second principle of justice is the principle of equity. Mm -hmm. That's not the same as equality. If I have $300, right. you must have $300. But equity means, uh, you know, it's a complex kind of a formula, but uh, you know, um, uh, the, the, a lot of people call it, uh, you should get the same amount of compensation mm -hmm. for the same amount, uh, you know, uh, of work, you know, and you can base it on productivity rather than on hours. Now, it's true that Marxism shifted it to hour rather than uh, productivity, but, you know, justice can be served with either criterion, and that's an important criterion. So that idea of equity, don't take anything away that belongs to someone, or don't take something away that is a person's just desserts from basically the, the standard we use to measure 
productivity or income that could come from, you know, uh, you know right. that that work. Now you say, well, what about a living wage? Look at what happened, you know, during um, the uh, uh, Industrial Revolution, mm -hmm. where people were exploited and things of that nature. Yes, there it should be laws where we have a minimum wage mm -hmm. that is really necessary to get, you know, the minimum standard for, you know, people being able to survive with a family of three or whatever. Uh, it's probably now down to a family of two. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, a, a total family of four, two children, um, you know, that would be, you know, pretty much a, a standard kind of thing. And, of course, it varies from state to state and from place to place because of inflation or property values or whatever. The main thing, though, is there are objective standards, and the whole history of the law has been replete with trying to, to have some objective standard. So justice was never thought to be a merely subjective virtue, not only for Jesus and for St. Paul, but even for Cicero, right? Cicero didn't know of Jesus, didn't know of the Jewish law. The Jewish law had objective standards uh, as well. You know, so, you know, uh, now for a long time it was the lex talionis, right? An eye for an eye and a tooth mm -hmm. for a tooth. Now that kind of justice Jesus wants to obviate. You know, so if somebody takes my eye, I can take your eye, mm -hmm. you know, and so forth and so on. Now Jesus says we should stop that and, you know, we need to do something more. But justice itself, it's always got equity in the mix. It's always got the principle of non-maleficence, do no unnecessary harm in the mix. It's always got something that's going to enable somebody to be and act like a human being mm -hmm. in the mix, what we call today inalienable rights. So those three principles are these objective principles of justice. And so Augustine said, those are the ones we got to observe. We got to make sure that we're not depriving people of being and acting like a human being. We've got to make sure that we're not doing them unnecessary or preventable harms. And we've got to make sure that, you know, they're given their just desserts and that their just desserts are not being taken away from them by some process of manipulation or whatever okay. the economic or social driver may be. Okay, very good. And the church <laughs> developed six additional principles of social ethics, which we alluded to last time. I wanted to jump to a couple. Yes. Of that, that are interesting. The principle of mm -hmm. subsidiarity, why, why did we decide that was important? Well, you know, again, we're going back to this uh, Pope, Pope Leo XIII and in this encyclical Rerum Novarum. Now, what's going on there is what, uh, you know, uh, Pope Leo recognized was, you know, you know going to the highest uh, bureaucratic or organizational level never did anybody any good because if you're up there at the top with the king or at the top with the president or at the top you know with the the, the richest guy in the economic system if you're at the highest levels of bureaucracy you don't get to see specifics you don't get to see what's uh, you know happening on the mm -hmm. specific level that was the first thing so remember subsidiarity means 
always go to the lowest right. level to solve the problem. So if you can solve the problem just within the organization, you don't have to go to an industry standard. Don't do that. Just solve it where it should be solved on the lowest level of organization. Just solve, you know, if you can do it with a city government, you don't have to escalate it to a state government and then to a law and then to a U.S. federal administrative law and mm. so forth and so on. You don't have to just solve it where the action, the, the where the appropriate authority source the, that can solve the problem with great specificity, mm -hmm. that's where it is. You'll always get better solutions. But there's a second reason for that. On the lowest level of what we call community or society, what's the founding building block of every society, culture, and 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 community? Family, family family. Okay. The problem with going endlessly up in the bureaucracy is you forget what a family produces, right? It's the whole thing of families have intimacy and families have genuine love. And in there, that's the best place to learn about law, to learn about morality, to learn about religion, where there, we can see, you know, the, the love of the family in action and that, you know, that religious authority, legal authority, moral authority, it's accompanied by the familial teaching, the familial love, the deep emotional intimacy, the concern for the other, right? All of these things. A bureaucracy can't do that. All a bureaucracy bureaucracy can do, it can't really teach from within and model from mm -hmm. within. What the bureaucracy can do is say, if you don't do it, I'm going to throw you in, the, in jail. If you don't do it, I'll fire you, you know, and so forth and right. so on. So it's what we call extrinsic motivation. But family is the source of deep, intimate, intrinsic motivation just because of who it is, just because of the love and emotional intimacy in it, just because of the religiosity and the religious faith of the people that are channeling the grace of God in it. These are the places. So if something can be done in the family for crying out loud, you don't need the city government uh, to do it. You don't need some social organization to right. do it. You don't need you know the the the, the red you know kerchief or the brown shirts uh, organization you know in Hitler's Germany to do it right. and so forth and so on uh, so the, the main right. thing is you want that done by the family so subsidiarity just simply means okay. let the family do what's appropriate to the family yeah, let a business right. do what's appropriate to the business don't keep skyrocketing back to the highest levels of bureaucracy right which is why parents are the first educators and the one responsible for their children's faith really formation and the best educators right exactly yeah, the, form, the best formatory right mm -hmm. so uh, about a minute i don't know if we can what about this we hear about <laughs> the principle of solidarity you know we heard about that a lot in yeah. poland and stuff with that whole idea of solidarity mm -hmm. where, where does that come from how does that fit into the mix yeah, the whole idea of solidarity is that, you know, uh, we, uh, you know, kind of this idea of what we call co-responsibility. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Christianity has always believed from its inception that the person is interpersonal, that, you know, we are our best selves, our most selves, our selves most alive when we're with, acting in concert with, 
and in community with other people. Mm -hmm. So the person is not an island. The person is not just simply a, a you know a solitary being. We're interpersonal beings. Now what that means is well then we're not just responsible for ourselves. The whole idea of stoic responsibility. I carry my own weight. You carry your own weight, right? So that's not the deal. What uh, Jesus is is trying to say, and what Christianity has said over the ages is actually I am my brother's keeper. I do have some responsibility for what happens to my brother. I do have some responsibility if he falls on hard times and I have the ability and the time to help him and so forth. I, there, so there's the idea of co-responsibility. Now when you get into what Leo the 13th did which was called social ethics, right? So you're now going to go up to the level of governments and communities. Okay. You're not just talking about me um, you know, having responsibility for right. my next door neighbor. You're now talking about my country having some co-responsibility for what happens to another country or me yeah. as one community having uh, some co-responsibility for the community next door that's not so fortunate, etc., etc. And so what this principle of solidarity does is it takes the notion of co-responsibility on the individual level and it uh, you know, elevates it up to the level of communities okay. or to groups or to countries. Right. And so it just means that does the U.S. have some co-responsibility for what happens in other countries that are less fortunate where we can have the help and the means to help out? Of course we right. do. So, of course, if there's a big, huge hurricane uh, in some place and, and right. uh, you say, well, it's not my country, you know, I mean, we've, we've got a ton out. of aid ready to go here. But, yeah, we no need to help. Yeah. So, yeah. So, of course, we got anyway, Thanksgiving happening yeah. this week, and of course, uh, people getting together <laughs> yeah. and sharing with one another. Hopefully, that's uh, a little bit of that solidarity that for people going through the same thing, at least on the uh, subsidiarity level, uh, the local level. With that, Father Spencer, if you'll <laughs> give us right. your uh, your blessing on the way out the door, that'd be great. And uh, please bow your heads and pray for God's blessing. And may the Lord, who truly is the source of all wisdom and the source of all love, who has given us these great principles of ethics, both individual and social, to be our light in the darkness, to help to defeat evil in the world, and to help to assure the victory of love that Christ has promised, be in your hearts and lead you through his Holy Spirit so that you might truly advance both church and culture through your actions and words in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you so much, Father Spitzer. Have a great Thanksgiving week, and we wish that to all of our viewers as well, of course. And remember that Father Spitzer's books and DVDs are always available through our EWTN Religious Catalog, including his latest book. Next week, we'll be answering your questions, so more questions coming your way. And CMN interview I did for Bookmark with a couple of authors, one Susan Joy Bellavance, and also the Marion Press Director of Communications, Dr. Joe McAleer, some wonderful children's books. You can look for some of these to be perfect for Christmas gifts. And we've got The Total Gift, a program featuring a focus on Catherine Drexel. It's the Catherine Drexel story, Sunday, November 26th at 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN. You can always turn to us We'll see you next time in Father Spitzer's universe. Have a good week.